on that. Welcome back to Cairo Nights. This goes out to a listener. Uh, listener who lost his dad, and this, this song brings back all the memories, all the feelings, and we're happy to be a part of that for you. So, uh... A lot of people had comments about the uh, multi-billionaire who's so dedicated to not aging. You know, stress kills and stressing over your health, man. That's that's still stress. And anyone who was 24 hours a day concerned about making themselves younger and on their health, uh, just that's a lot of narcissism floating around right there. Have your doctor check you for that level. You know... Uh, you know what the doomsday clock is, Matt? Right? Of course you do. It's that, uh, well, I'll tell you what. I've got the uh, Reuters with a explanation of what the doomsday clock is. It's a really well-encapsulated uh, piece of audio. So let me play that and we'll talk about how the doomsday clock has been updated. So listen to this. The doomsday clock is a symbolic timepiece showing how close the world is to ending. Midnight marks the theoretical point of annihilation. Every year, scientists move the hands of the clock closer to or further away from midnight, based on their reading of existential threats at that time. Cambridge University's expert on existential threat, Paul Ingram, explains. It uh, emerged at the beginning of the Cold War to to give a sense of the urgency uh, to achieve nuclear disarmament and to climb out of the abyss that we were facing in the early 1950s. And in more recent times, it has taken on climate change and uh, emerging disruptive technology to give a sense of the risks, the catastrophic risks that we face uh, as a planet, uh, largely through our own uh, deliberate uh, activities. Yes, how close we are to blowing ourselves up, essentially. That is the doomsday clock. So it was announced this week that the doomsday clock, which was always, you've always heard the term two minutes to midnight. That's how these scientists assess the threats to civilization, to to the apocalypse from various uh, nuclear threats and various, again, it was updated because of global warming and various environmental impacts are, are living as a, as a race, as a, as a species on this rock, has pushed us toward our own annihilation. Well, they say that the, the war in Ukraine has pushed the doomsday clock 30 seconds closer to midnight. I guess their, uh, their assessment is that since Vladimir Putin's Russia has been saying that they would resort to nuclear weapons if the uh, if the West gets involved with their efforts to reclaim the portion of Ukraine they feel was always part of Russia and was wrongly taken from the Soviet Union and that the former Russian citizens who are living in that eastern portion of Ukraine, they are being liberated by Russian forces you know, and Meanwhile, Russia is, you know, of course, targeting civilians and infrastructure and all the things that make life a living hell for the citizens of Ukraine. And when the West decided this week, the German government and the United States government reached an agreement that would allow 
uh, tanks to be supplied to the Ukrainians uh, for ground assaults to counter the Russian invasion of their country. And that pushed the doomsday clock 30 seconds closer to midnight. And I was talking with this this afternoon with Jack Stein, and he had just a total dismissal of the doomsday clocks, the whole concept that these folks could weigh various assessments, whether they be man-made, whether they be environmental, whether they be, you know, uh, the threat of nuclear annihilation, how many people have nuclear weapons in the world, how those weapons have fallen in out of controls in some cases, all these different danger points that push us toward some fictitious clock that is the end of mankind. And I get it because there's no way to know, and it's all just posturing. It's all just PR. But it is the scientific community's opportunity to tell us that there are real consequences to how civilization acts and how we treat each other and how we treat the planet, the only one we've got right now. I know that SpaceX and those other guys are working hard, Jeff Bezos and And, and I'm sure Elon. that's for us to join them, of Yeah, course. right. <laughs> it's not just going to be we'll them. Be their preferred broadcasters on Mars. <laughs> yes. They will need a solid radio station, Matt. You should be safe. Did you ever see Don't Look Up? Yes. Uh, if you guys missed Don't Look Up, it was a movie last year that, was, that came out, and it was literally a parody of how information is used to manipulate people. How you know the, the the just flat out denial of reality is often the the most comfortable way for some people to live their lives. Anyway, at the long story short and total spoiler alert, at the end of that movie, the the important people manage to leave the planet in a nuclear holocaust and go to populate another uh, livable planet. Upon which time they landed and immediately eaten by the animals that live there. It's a fantastic ending. It's total poetic justice. But I digress. You know, the fact that that the world could end at any moment, it's nice that we have this, you know, doomsday clock so that we can be made aware that our actions do have legitimate consequences and we have to think about what we do and how it might be the straw that breaks the planet's back. But Jack and I were, were kind of contemplating on this that, you know, why does the clock never go the other way? Why does the clock never go the other way when we do things like, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency, which makes the rivers in Ohio no longer catch on fire? Shouldn't that dip the clock backwards a little bit? How about when the EPA works on air quality and the air in Los Angeles or New York can actually, you can see through it again? And I know there are still places, most places in the world like, you know, uh, Delhi in India or Beijing in China, which you really can't see through the air. The pollution is so bad. And we are on just one big rock. And what we do is only a small pack, a fraction of how the, the earth is impacted by humanity. And I, I put forth this afternoon that, you know, forget 60 seconds to midnight or 90 seconds to midnight or two minutes to midnight. We're one bad Kim Jong-un haircut from midnight. When people like that have nuclear capabilities... You know, anything could be the straw that tips that tips the scales. So all the all the calculations and and pontification about the various threats we have to humanity and civilization. Yeah, okay. None of that really matters. You know, uh, it's been put forth that Vladimir Putin has children. He has grandchildren. He's not going to ever. They, he talks the tough game, but he's never going to you know launch nuclear weapons. 
if he if the war in Ukraine doesn't turn his way, if concessions aren't made, if somebody doesn't come to the table, Putin's never going to just fire the missiles. I don't I don't know that that's the case. I think Putin might be worried about his more worried about his legacy and his place in history than he is about his grandkids. I honestly think that. Wasn't that the hope of that sting song, Russians? I hope the Russians love their children too. Yeah. But that was um Khrushchev and you know that was Reagan and that that was before Putin even took over. But yeah, that was I hope the Russians I hope the Russians love their children too. Yeah. Absolutely. And that and the and the song started with a clock, remember? That that, that clock ticking. Yeah. So we've all, we've always well when when did the doomsday clock start? Nineteen forty seven. That's when when U.S. had dropped the first nuclear weapon, right? Two years later, two years after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's when the, the the powers that be, the scientists, got together and put together this doomsday clock and let us know before the Cold War, before you know, nuclear, mutual nuclear annihilation was a realistic threat. You know. When I was a kid, and I, I hate to be the old man on my lawn segment of our show, but I can remember air raid drills and, you know, where we would practice as a elementary school class, the whole school, would at, at one o'clock on Mondays, the siren go off in our neighborhood in Baltimore. Every Monday at one o'clock, we would all hide under our desks, our little wooden desks, and practice, you know, sitting in a ball on the floor with our hands behind our head because, you know, in case of a nuclear <laughs> attack, that little wooden desk and me being in the proper posture would probably be what saved my life. Yeah, okay, whatever. It was just, just trying to feel better about being prepared, I guess. But we've always had this threat of Cold War nuclear annihilation. I just, I just wish that when we did things that were beneficial, the clock would go the other way, right? Say we covered the entire state of Utah, in solar panels and eliminated the need for fossil fuels completely, right? Wouldn't that tick the clock back to, oh, hey, guess what? Now it's an hour and a half till midnight. Relax, everybody. We're going to be okay. Oh, by the way, Kim Jong-un had a bad haircut, so it's back to 30 seconds to midnight. It's it's so arbitrary. It's so meaningless. Did you ever hear the, the, uh, the story of there is a design, an engineer who built these road panels. They're octagon in shape, and they are solar collectors. Have you heard that before? I seem to recall this story. Yeah, the, this, this guy had the, uh, had the technology breakthrough that they made these incredibly tough solar panels that they were like, I think, hexagonal or octagonal in shape, and they could be strung together like, you know, in a pattern, like a honeycomb but beehive pattern and you could build roadways out of these. And these things would not just be durable roadways, but they would collect solar power. They would collect the sun's energy. And that would be enough to, to power the world. And we could stop digging for coal. We could stop, you know, drilling for oil, all the carbon things that are, you know, leading toward climate change. And I know the climates have always changed, but, you know, I think man does have some impact. If it's not caused by, it's at least assisted. 
you know, a tire will roll down a hill. A tire you push down a hill will roll a little faster. I'm just saying, man does have some, some skin in the game. Speaking of annihilation and the end of the world, which is such a great, happy topic for this Thursday night at Cairo Nights. There was a story this week about how electric cars could spell the doom of the world if we don't do it right. And Matt, you had this story a couple nights ago put on the board, and I didn't get to it that night. But essentially, the, think, the thinking is that the U.S.'s demand for, for electric vehicles and, and states like Washington and California, which are going to outlaw the sale of internal combustion engines by 2035, that push for electric vehicles is going to cause such a push for lithium for the battery components of electric vehicles that it really is going to, you know, spell the end of the environment. If, if we don't, if all we do in combating climate change and carbon emissions is everybody drives electric vehicles, so that solution is doom. And the, the essence of this story, I read it, but we didn't get to it, and I apologize, and I know it's in the, in the notes here somewhere. The essence of that story is the only way we will stop the impending climate crisis that uh, carbon monoxide is causing is if we stop commuting altogether and live in walking communities or rely on mass transit to a point where we eliminate most of the personal vehicles on the road. That was kind of the, the gist of this whole thing. That was the way to be the most efficient way to save the environment, was to redesign our cities into walking communities and communities where mass transit could provide the vast majority of all the urban transportation needs. They would all be light rail lines or whatever other capacity it would be, walking or biking or whatever. And I got to tell you, as Americans, that's not going to happen. You know, to quote Queen, I'm in love with my car. Right. We love the independence and the feeling of freedom that comes with the American vehicle. I mean, that's that's the car more than anything made America what it is today. You know, everybody having a car in the driveway, every kid getting the keys to the car, you know, every kid getting with the girlfriend and the keys to the car. That's the kind of that's what made America America. And, you know, and the world followed suit, of course, but we started it here. That sense of independence, that sense of accomplishment that is so American of having your own vehicle, that's not going to change. So maybe we have to have a nice balance of a better urban planning, better public transportation systems. But what I really think is going to be the solution to all this, I really do think this, is that electric vehicles are going to evolve, believe it or not, folks. They're going to evolve to a point where the ability to power these and the batteries required to power these are going to become easier to manufacture, smaller in size, and we won't have to dig holes in three-fourths of the planet to find all the lithium we need to have all the batteries we'll need on the current scale of what it takes to get an electric vehicle going. I mean, currently the batteries for electric vehicles, all that lithium, is horrible for the planet. Horrible for the planet. And it's it's like... Slave child. I mean, it's always slave child labor that gets the lithium for these batteries. That's that's the way the 
the anti-electric vehicle people always paint this picture, which is not really a true representation. But lithium mining is horrible for the planet. And if we're going to get away from internal combustion engines and go to electric, we better evolve the system of powering these and the batteries required to do so, so that that battery isn't going to be what kills us. Chasing a lack of carbon emissions shouldn't be what what does us in environmentally, the pursuit of lithium. I hope that's not how it plays out, because that would really zip the old doomsday clock ahead a few thousand seconds. Big lithium pits where we sucked all the lithium out of the planet. On that cheery note, <laughs> people after all of that might start wishing for that asteroid to come a little closer. Oh my gosh, yeah, that that story, the asteroid, didn't that zip by this afternoon, right? Yeah. Uh, an asteroid came within 2,200 miles of Earth today, which is one of the closest it has ever come to this planet, any asteroid has ever come to this planet. I'm not sure how they measure that. I know science has got it all figured out, and they traject, they follow the trajectories of, you know, the orbit of various interstellar bodies. But this this asteroid was like the size of a dump truck, and came and flew just above the coast of the southern tip of South America this afternoon. Yeah, four twenty at four twenty seven, if this afternoon Pacific time. It's during the John Curley and Sherry Elliker show. A, an asteroid the size of a dump truck just sipped on past South America without causing any harm. Lucky us. Dodged another tractor-sized bullet. Well done. Dinosaurs everywhere. Breathe a sigh of relief this time. <laughs> it's Cairo Nights. I'm Spike Lee along with Matt Butler. We'll be right back. Cairo Nights. So we had a poll on uh, on MyNorthwest.com about how people feel about uh, the end of the world. And let me let me dig it, let me pull it up really quick here. I, it was sent to me this afternoon, and the sad the sad part is. That, first off, that it's taken me this long to find the poll, which I apologize for, but that the vast majority of our listening audience is not feeling good about our, our ability or our, the chance that we're going to make it. We under-index with the optimists. Yeah. Um, so to be fair, uh, a, a poll was offered on MyNorthwest.com, and it's actually still there if you'd like to go take a look and weigh in. Currently, here are the poll results. There are three days left on the poll, by the way. Here are your options, by the way. You know, how close do you, this is the question. How close do you think we are to the end of the world as we know it? A group of atomic scientists say that we are at a time of unprecedented danger. And they have shifted the doomsday clock from two minutes to 90 seconds. The options are, A, any minute now. B, within my kid's lifetime. C, centuries from now. And D, there's no chance of apocalypse. Well, the the number one vote getter was centuries from now. 
37 plus percent of you guys, 37.7 percent of the audience, thinks that the apocalypse, the end of time, is centuries from now. While the the close second place finisher, 34.6 percent of our audience, over one in three, thinks that within my kid's lifetime, we will blow ourselves up. We'll, we'll, it'll all come to an end. The apocalypse, whether it be climate-driven or conflict-driven, over a third of this audience thinks that was within my kid's lifetime. Now, the third-place finisher was about 17%, no chance of apocalypse at all. And luckily, only one in 10 of us, 10%, 10.8% says any minute now. The world could end at any minute now. And I know we laid out some scary scenarios, you know. Putin loses the war, says that's it. I'm not I'm not I'm going down in a blaze of glory. By the way, on on Russian television on a daily basis, on a daily basis, their state run television tells their citizens that, you know, they're liberating Ukraine and if it doesn't if the West gets involved and comes after Russia, the missiles will fly. And Russians being on the right side of the issue will all go to heaven and the rest of the world will burn in hell. And that will spell victory. They're telling their citizens that nuclear is an option in Russia on state TV. So it's not as, not as far-fetched as one might think that you know Vladimir Putin might have his hand on the doomsday clock. I, I however, fall into the optimist category. I think we're going to be just fine. I, don't think, I think we're going to solve the problems of our planet before, long before we, we burn ourselves up. Never underestimate the ability of humanity to create new problems. This is true. <laughs> what takes us out might not even be on our radar yet, at least mine. I mean, who, who would have thought three years ago that a, a virus, you know, whether man-made in a Chinese laboratory, which a lot of people think is probably what happened, or a, as we were told, you know, something in a, in a, a wet market, is that what they called it in Wuhan, right? A wet market where live animals were sold, exotic live animals were sold for food. And it started with a bat or something like that. That That's how the virus would start. That a virus would wipe out so many. Globally. I mean, globally. Who knows? Who knows where the, the or maybe it'd be that asteroid. Who knows where it's going to come from? You know, some texture said the, the scary thing about the asteroid that passed over South America this afternoon came within 2,200 miles of Earth. They didn't spot it until a couple of days ago. Boy, I you know, I, I I get most of my information from movies, so it's not really you know not really that solid my information. For the most part, I tend to believe a lot of things I see on the screen. Remember Armageddon, the movie Armageddon, where the asteroid was coming, and Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck had to go up there and drill a hole in it and blow it up with Steve Buscemi, and what a great cast that was, right? I think Owen Wilson was in that movie, Liv Tyler, and Aerosmith's I Don't Want to Miss a Thing was the soundtrack of, of Armageddon. Awesome, awesome. Anyway, in that movie, the two, we solved the problem. We, we Humanity pulled it out, man. We're, we're smarter. We'll figure it out. I mentioned this afternoon, we were having a discussion this afternoon about, you know, what it's going to take to fix our problems. And, and I said to Jack Stein, and it, it's actually was quoted on My Northwest. They wrote up the, the piece on My Northwest. I saw it there, and they even spelled my name right, Matt. It's really a, a proud moment for me. I think, and I've heard this from, from smart people, that there's a, there's a global water shortage. 
You know, and there, as the population continues to grow, over 8 billion people on the planet now, that uh, food shortages will be an issue and water shortages. The, the next wars will be fought over water rights and over water itself. But I think this, you know, they are closer than ever to creating laboratory meat, meat without animals, without the need for animals. Right. And now you and me, we, we, that's disgusting to me. I can't even contemplate lab generated meat. Well, in fairness, depending on if you have an unhealthy Western diet, probably a lot of the meat you're eating is barely meat. You know, I didn't ever hear that, but you're right. <laughs> but I, again, I didn't ever need to hear that. But I here's, mean the McRib, for example. Love it's the not, thing, yeah, but, never hmm. been near a pig. Nothing in a McRib has been near a pig ever. But <laughs> my point is when it comes to time of, you know, they say, how, can we, how will we feed all these people? Right? How will we ever feed all these people? You know, there was a time when you couldn't grow enough wheat. And then they, they genetically engineered wheat that was shorter, dwarf wheat, fed millions, right? Science came to the rescue. And while you or I, the idea of meat that didn't come from a real animal is repulsive, they'll come a day. It's actually not repulsive to me. I don't, I don't find it particularly strange because so many things are artificially manufactured anyway that I don't think, if you didn't tell me especially and I just tasted it and it was fine, I wouldn't really be upset. That, well, that, see, you've got an advanced psyche. I'm a, I'm a Neanderthal. But there'll be a day when people will be happy to have lab-generated meat. We'll be able to feed the population, you know, without having to have a million cows farting up the distance. More methane comes from cows than cars. You know, more pollution comes from industrial farming than, uh, than a lot of other elements in our world, in our environment. If we can find a time where we can feed the planet... You know, through science, through innovation, we'll we'll make it. But when I said this afternoon, desalinization, there are 37 desalinization plants already underway in California. And it's an expensive process right now. It's an incredibly expensive process, a difficult process. But just like car batteries, we will we will innovate. We will evolve. And there will come a day when we can take salt water, which is literally three quarters of this planet, two thirds of this planet is salt water. The day that we can take that salt water and turn it into drinkable, usable water, we're going to be fine. There won't be any wars over water rights. You know? We won't have to suck every reservoir dry. We won't have to outlaw sprinklers in Arizona. We won't have to get rid of golf courses. Tell a lot of these guys in power, these old rich, fat, white guys in power, we're going to have to eliminate golf courses because we're running out of water. They'll find a way to desalinize the ocean. You bet they will. If it keeps them golfing, you bet your ass they will. I have faith in humanity. And fat, rich, old white guys need to keep golfing. I have faith. It's Cairo Nights. I'm Spike O'Neill with Matt Butler. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Cairo Nights. Oh. I miss R.E.M. I really do, man. 
a band that was once the biggest thing on the face of the earth just decided they were done. Pride of, was it Athens, Georgia, right? Athens, Georgia, also yeah. the home of the B-52s. Yep, that's right. That, and that, that was a college town, right? That's the home University of Georgia. That's why the band culture was so hot. Outstanding. Yep, the same town that gave us Herschel Walker gave us that band. So there's, okay, it'll balance itself out. Do you know what uh, the right to repair bills are, Matt? Yeah, like if you have something, let's say it's a phone, a smartphone, some electronic device that you have the right to repair it without having to go back to the manufacturer, basically, right? Exactly. When you own a device that needs expert repair, and companies, and I don't mean to point Apple out specifically, but it's the prime example. When something goes wrong with your iPhone, you have to take it to an Apple store. You have to, you know, your your iPad, your MacBook, you, you want a new battery in your MacBook. Yeah, it's only, you know. A two hundred and some dollar repair at the Apple Store. Well, states have tried to champion legislation, and some states have already well down the track on this. When New York State, in particular, they signed a uh, a law back in the last days of twenty twenty two, the Digital Fair Repair Act, and that literally says that you have the right to own the the tools and the technology to repair the devices you paid for. The f- right to repair bills. Both Apple and Samsung have recently expanded their self-repair programs to encompass more devices, which is great. John Deere just signed a referendum of understanding with the American Farm Bureau Federation to enhance the ability of farmers to timely control the lawful operation and upkeep of agricultural equipment. The ability to repair your own stuff so that the, the technology or the tools, even the little tool, that opens your phone to make a simple repair, like change out a battery, right? You can buy the battery on the open market for pennies on the dollar, $10, 15 $20 for a new battery. And if you own the tool to pop open your phone, it's really not a hard process to do that yourself and save you the 200 and some dollars it's going to cost you to take your phone to a retailer, you know, a authorized retailer and get it fixed. 14 states have introduced new bills so far, the right-to-repair bills. The nation's first right-to-repair law was enacted in Colorado last summer, and that was focused on wheelchairs, folks with motorized wheelchairs who wanted the ability to make the repairs on these very costly pieces of equipment. This is the government stepping in to do something for us that's good for us. You know, government's usually about protecting business, more so than protecting people. I think that's safe to say. But governments are starting to realize that people, uh, you know, when you buy something, you should be able to maintain it yourself, like a tractor to your farm. You know, I I had no idea that, that John Deere had proprietary knowledge and equipment that if something goes wrong, you need to have them fix it or it ain't getting fixed. Do you remember that whole issue with the McDonald's ice cream machines where those uh, that couple came up with a fix for it? It was like a monitor app that could alert you to certain things in the machine and help you to fix it more promptly. And McDonald's and the manufacturers of that uh, ice cream machine got really mad at them for that. And, and I think there's suits and countersuits yeah, over it. Yeah, you're right. And, and is there anything less reliable than a McDonald's 
ice cream machine? There is actually or was a map on the internet that sh- <laughs> purported to show whether or not the ones near you were working. Really? See, that? I'd like to know that. I'd download that app. You know, this is a couple that, I mean, because McDonald's are franchised out. They're independently owned. Yeah, so these people are selling their product to franchisees to help them with a malfunctioning machine. Right, to stay in business. the manufacturer, rather than bring these people in and say, hey, let's adapt your knowledge and make this more serviceable, was actually like, no, you're interfering with our business. Get out of here. Well, because the business is fixing the machines. That's a better business than selling the machines. I don't know. I'd rather sell a product that worked. You and me both. Unless you own the repair shop, then you want to sell a product that breaks and you want to be the only guy that can fix it. These are these are great efforts by our government, both state and federal, to give us the power to to have to obtain the information and obtain the tools to fix our own damn equipment and stay in business. You know, if I own a shop, if I, if I franchised out at McDonald's and the people I I trusted said, no, no, you can't fix your own gear. You can't figure out how to fix your own gear. That's our job. And you got to pay our freight to fix it. I'd be livid. I'd be out of business. I'd be gone. I'd be a Wendy's by next Thursday. I'd be out of the arch game completely. It's it's hardly frustrating when you can't be self-reliant, when you want to be self-sufficient, and you can't. And so good on the federal government, good on the states. 14 different states now have laws in the pipeline. 22 different bills in 14 states. And I don't see anything in the state of Washington about that. I'm going to try to look at it and see if we have any of that in place in Washington, a right to repair act. That would be nice to know. I don't see Washington listed in the States in here, but I'll do a little more research and come back for you. Let you know if we are also on the path of being able to open up our own phone, swap out the battery, put a new screen on. I mean, how many times I've had to pay to have my daughter's phones repaired over the years, cracked screens, Cruddy in, you know, I don't know how these these kids get so much gunk into the charging portal of their phones. It's it's mind blowing. And I got to take it in and have it professionally serviced at an Apple store at their rate and wait and then look like an idiot at the at the at the. At the Genius bar. At least with Apple, though, if you have Apple Care, their service is really good. True, but you got to buy a warranty there. But I'd like to have the, I'd like to skip Apple Care, the monthly charge for Apple Care, whatever the the, the, the bill for Apple Care. I'm going to do it myself. I tell you what, with a YouTube video, there's nothing I can't fix. I'm a firm believer. I've become Mister Home Repair in the last ten years. Because of YouTube videos. I've swapped out major components on my vehicles. I got my car to 350,000 miles doing repairs myself from stuff I watched on YouTube. I could probably take out my own teeth, my own spleen after watching a YouTube video. I think if I learned how to fix an iPhone at home, I should be allowed to do that. Maybe I'll leave my teeth to the professionals. Probably a good idea. It's getting late. I'm thinking a little weird here tonight, Matt. We'll be right back to Cairo Nights. I'm Spike O'Neill along with Matt Butler. Please join us.